Yo, happy Easter. Thanks for clicking on the podcast. Let's do this. Holiday episode. Yeah. Um, heading to uh, my mother-in-law's house today for Easter. That's right. That's right. That's right. It was a big week, actually. I had uh, a birthday this week. I turned 38 years old on Wednesday, March 31st, a day that I have been told many times in my life does not exist. Uh, I think that might be an ongoing thing, too, because that was actually a storyline in Parks and Recreation. Do you remember when uh, Aubrey Plaza's character scheduled all of Ron's meetings for March 31st because she didn't think it existed? And then when it came, when it became March 31st, he had 92 meetings scheduled. Uh, I remember sitting, and my buddy Jeremy Bennell every year wishes me a happy April the 0th because of this. I remember sitting and flirting with some girls when I was maybe in middle school. And these girls were... Yeah, you know, I don't know. When you're in middle school, what do you flirt with, right? And at some point, birthdays come up, and I say mine is March 31st, and these girls just couldn't believe I would lie to them. Couldn't believe it. There is no March 31st. <laughs> so I had the perfect birthday, by the way. Here's what happened on my birthday. So um, I've had a big week, too. I've got so much to tell you. My God. Uh, my birthday was like this. Woke up, went to breakfast with my wife and son. We went to Village Bakery. If you remember, Tuesday was the 70-degree day this past week. So actually, Wednesday morning was still kind of warm out. So we went. We were actually able to sit outside nice and early at Village Bakery. And so we had breakfast. Um, then I went and got my second COVID vaccine. Then I went to work. Worked a half a day. Literally worked, I think, total of six hours Wednesday. Came home. Um, and my wife brought me out to dinner. We went out to Char, and this was a big step for my wife. I've been out, I've been out a handful of times for business stuff. I haven't been out a ton myself, but a handful of times. My wife has literally not been out, period, since COVID. So this was a first for her. And we had early reservations, and we first got there, there was nobody there. And then you know, twenty, thirty minutes in, people start surrounding us but I and I I could see it in her though she was getting a little nervous but at the same time we were getting a glass of wine or two in her so she was she was okay Uh, but oh my god char is so good it's just so good I had a Kansas City strip melted gorgonzola on top a little char steak sauce on the side some Brussels sprouts we split some truffle fries we split some risotto Mm. perfect dinner Perfect birthday in general. Came home, played baseball in the living room with my son. He's finally learning uh, T-ball. He likes to put the ball up on the tee and swing at it. So that's cool. Just a perfect birthday. And then the next day, I felt kind of like shit because the COVID is no joke, man. The COVID vaccine. That was my second one. People have been talking about side effects. I'm not going to lie. I felt some side effects. It wasn't a big deal. You know, it's it wasn't I have to stay in bed. I can't move. I'm sick. Don't talk to me. It wasn't anything like that. I still went to work, still did my job, but I didn't feel 100%. I just felt, for lack of a better term, I just felt 75%. I don't know how else to put it. I just felt a little tired, a little cloudy, a little sore. Uh, My whole body, you know, specifically for some reason, my legs felt sore. I don't know why. My arm was sore where I got the shot. That was it. It was just enough to kind of make it so that it was almost impossible to have a perfect day but I powered through I made up for the previous short day at work stayed there all night you know it was it was just fine and by the time I woke up Friday morning 
This was two days after my shot. I felt a thousand percent. I was all good. So not a big deal. No big deal. It was a it was a rough way. I had a couple tired days this week. Actually, last Saturday <clears throat> was a rough day. I went home to visit my parents. And in the middle of the night, my mother had a some sort of medical episode and we had to call nine one one. Um the story ends well, so you know, if I seem nonchalant about telling this story right now, understand I know the ending and you don't yet. But in the moment, you know, I'm 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 home, like I'm home sleeping in Ohio for the first time in a year and a half because that's my new COVID thing. Now that I've had both shots, if I can say, I believe going forward, if I am in a room with someone, if I'm in a meeting with somebody, I'm going to politely ask them two questions. Number one, have you been vaccinated? If the answer is yes. Number two, would you like to proceed with our masks off? I feel comfortable if you do. I'm going to try and take back a little bit of normal here. You know, that's my plan. And if they say no, then of course I will not remove my mask. But if I'm sitting in a room with somebody who's also vaccinated and feels comfortable having their mask off, I think I'm going for it. I think I'm going to say it's mask off time. That's just for me, at least. Sorry, let me grab a little sip of coffee. Love these early morning podcasts. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, last Saturday, it was great. You know, we kind of celebrated my birthday. The tradition at home is my mom gets me a Dairy Queen ice cream cake. Been doing that since I was a little kid. Is it the world's best ice cream cake? Probably not. Is it bad? Absolutely not bad. Love me a Dairy Queen ice cream cake. And it's tradition. Reminds me of childhood. So we eat rainbow pizza. We have this ice cream cake. It was a wonderful dinner. We all go to bed. My father bursts into my room at 1.18 a.m. saying, your mother is very sick. She needs to go to the hospital. Now, I, of course, immediately, immediately, I imagine the worst, the worst thing possible. I run upstairs. I mean, really, I'm upstairs within eight seconds, I would say. And my mom is laying on the bed and she's shaking quite a bit and she's calm. She's very calm. But she just is saying, call 911, call 911. And then she says, Paul, hold my hand. And I hold her hand. And it's very clammy. She's cold. She's sweating. Her eyes are closed. And, you know, it's clear that she's panicking. The ambulance comes. We're not sure what's going on. We're thinking because she is a diabetic. She did have some pizza and some cake that night. We're thinking, well, possibly it's some sort of diabetes attack, blood sugar spiking. They take her blood sugar right on the spot. It's not the case. So now we're, we're you know, everyone's we don't know she she rushes to the hospital the ambulance takes her by the way quick question i follow this ambulance i am doing 65 in a 35 trying to catch up to this ambulance and i was wondering it's two o'clock in the morning in a small town in ohio so you know there's no traffic or anything if a police officer had witnessed that they were clearly going to pull pull me over right obviously what would i do would i just call 911 myself at that moment and say, hey, I'm the guy they're following. I'm on my way to the hospital. Leave me the hell alone. <laughs> like, what would I do? I don't know. Anyway, nobody nobody did. That didn't happen. I get to the hospital. Of course, COVID. So they only let one person in, which is an improvement. They used to let nobody in. So we decide, of course, it should be my father. So he goes in and now I'm relying on my dad's text messages to keep me updated. I head home. I'm now, you know, I'm up all night now at this point. And what it all turns out to be is vertigo. She has a bout with vertigo. I guess in January she had a ear infection and um, 
it never truly healed properly. And I guess, you know, the balance, our literal physical balance comes from our ears. And so that part got, I don't know how vertigo works, but I guess that got infected. And so she just lost all sense of herself. Like she lost the ability to balance herself in any way. And, uh, and, and of course that induced a ton of panic because think about it when you're, when you're dizzy, you're also usually nauseous. And so it all just, all those side effects then add up. Now, of course, after the fact, we're all admitting we were all fearing the worst because we're all thinking heart attack and stroke. So at the end, in the end, I should say vertigo was a win because it's not that big of a deal. It's a little scary. Certainly vertigo, if it comes on quickly, can make you fall. And that's dangerous for people of any age. Um, So, you know, but in the end, still, it it came out better than what we were fearing for a little while there. It was very scary, though. That middle of the night rush to the hospital thing. God, I don't wish that on people, man. That's tough and rough. Tough and rough. Not interested in that. Oh, what else to tell you about this? Oh, I wanted to thank you for helping my... um, my campaign along, I, I went online and I said, I believe that Billy DeTore should be Dave Kane's replacement on WCMF. And I wish it had gone a little bit more Rochester viral than it did. It, it only got a few hundred likes. Uh, I, you know, look, I, what are you going to do? I know the algorithms work in a way that if you're begging for likes, you're typically not going to get them. So, you know, they hate clickbait, things like that. So I, I don't know if it was held back by that. But anyway, it still got plenty of love. Lots of people believe that. And think about it. You're talking about the the, uh, the city's most legendary classic rock station. And you're talking about the guy in Rochester, New York, with probably the most knowledge regarding old rock music of anybody. I know there's a couple other guys. I think that there are, you know, there's some, look, there's some music experts out there, but who else is there that has that kind of music expertise on top of complete favorability by that audience? Because the WCMF audience and the 95.1 audience are very similar. Uh, I think they share a ton of listeners. And the fact that it would even be imaginable for one second that Billy DeTore wouldn't be instantly recognizable familiar and favorable with that audience is absurd he won't get the job here's i'm just here to tie i don't think he's gonna get the job and why won't he get the job bullshit just bullshit it's just corporate bullshit it's just you know you have to check a bunch of boxes and as much as you and the public think that the boxes that someone should be able to check are the following are you good at this job does the audience like you (laughs) right those are the two things if somebody can accomplish those two things if they can be good and have an audience that loves them they should be on the radio quite frankly they should get that job but no there's a whole list of bureaucratic bullshit you know this whole list that you have to be able to check are you one of the good old boys have we known you since back in the day have you worked for 87 different call letters can we tell old stories about the time we all got drunk back when we were in our 20s at some bar? Then can we talk like this when we do it? Uh, do you remember when we all worked for WABC and we went to that one place and that, that one convention? And then we, and then, oh my God, do you remember that one DJ from San Diego who got super drunk? Oh, what an inside joke story we have together. You have to be one of those guys, you know? It's one of my favorite. When I would go to those morning show boot camps with Weez, Weez was Weez was such a legend at those things. But like, 
what was funny was listening to all the other guys talk to each other because it was just a call letter fest. Uh, uh, excuse me, uh, are you the, you're Rick the Wild Thing Raccoon? Are you the same Rick the Wild Thing Raccoon that was on WBRZ in Idaho for a while? Are you the one that was on KPRR2 and WPXY and WLRN? That's you. Uh, yes, actually, though, but you forgot my time that I spent at WBLR in Texas. That was a very influential time for me. That was what, like, every conversation sounded like at Morning Show Boot Camp. Yeah, boy. Anyway, I, you know, Dave Kane, by the way, will go down in town as a legend. I know he was mostly a jock, but when you hear that radio song, or when you hear that song, there goes the last DJ. Weeze used to take that song and kind of claim it for himself. I'll be honest with you. We, I believe Dave Kane sort of deserves that song more than Weeze, and I'll explain because I think Weeze deserves more than that song. Weeze is more, Weeze is a legend, right? Dave Kane is a DJ, and it's awesome. What he did is a huge deal. It's awesome. Everybody loves the guy. He's fantastic. But he's the last DJ. I mean, this is probably the last true honest-to-God DJ in Rochester, New York, right? I have to believe. I'm thinking about every station. Who, who is there in Rochester, New York, on a commercial radio station who's, like, jocking records? Nobody. He's the last guy. Weeze will go down in history as a legend of a different kind, but not a jock, not a DJ. You know what I mean? Anyway, um, let me switch gears back to the weekend that I spent at home while I was there prior to the hospital trip. I had the opportunity to interview my aunt, who is extremely accomplished, a journalist, an editor, works for the USA Today Network. No big deal. No big deal. No big deal. And by the way, uh, was once nominated for a little something called the Pulitzer Prize. What? Oh, yeah. This is my aunt. I'm related to this lady. Wait to hear how smart she is. Great storyteller. Brilliant person. Brilliant mother. Brilliant aunt. Honor of my life to even be related to this person. Kim Strong is on the podcast. say one and a half so one of my tricks i just want you to know with podcasting is that we're already rolling oh my god (laughs) i made my musical debut (laughs) no i think i got you right in the middle of your note are you our ears bleeding right now that's (laughs) 
I, I have to get the now I have to get the uh, what's it called the copyright to that music though. So I think you're going to be safe on that. Or I don't know what the rule is on how much I'm allowed to air of the of an actual like copywritten piece of art. You know, right. you might be safe. You might dodge a bullet. Is what I'm trying to say. We'll edit out where you were singing. Okay, awesome. But the confession about having been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> that's in that's the no i'm just kidding uh well thanks for doing this i appreciate yeah, it sure thing yeah so i want to talk i mean we're going to talk a lot about the stories that you've worked on and written over okay. the course of years and years i want to get into like some of the stories there's been many many big ones but let's just start with like career where you started i mean i always love talking to very accomplished people because at some point you also had to be somebody who hadn't been proven yet, right? I mean, there right. was oh. a time in your life where you were like, please, somebody let me write for yes. you. Yes. Let's go back to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was a senior in college, I sent out, and I remember this still to this day, 72 resumes. Wow. Yeah, and those wow. were the days when actually, when you created a resume, you went to a you went to a, a printer. Like, they typeset it for you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I sent out 72 and, like, didn't hear back from a lot of them, but one of them was the Lewistown Sentinel, tiny little paper in the middle of Pennsylvania. And you were from Erie, Pennsylvania. I was from Erie, right. Okay. So, like, I didn't even know what Lewistown was. Never even heard. I saw the, I saw the uh, word on a sign, on a sign on the highway, you know. Like, that's all yeah. I knew of Lewistown. And so, yeah, off I went. Well, let's go even further back, though. When did you actually decide you wanted to be a writer? Um, I w when I was a teenager, I loved to write poems. And okay. I loved stories, and I would collect stories. And um, there was a famous columnist, Irma Bombeck. I loved her. She was funny. She was tender. Um, I thought she was amazing. I thought, how does she do this? I loved the storytelling. So I was like, um, I think I was 15 years old when I was had written and written and written and written. And finally, um, somebody in my family said, you should go into journalism. And I thought... That sounds kind of interesting. Were you were you at all shy at that age to let somebody read your stuff? Were you like because it, you're really putting yourself out there? You're like, yeah. what do you think? Like, isn't that a tough thing when you write something and then you give it? Now at this point, it's your whole life. But back then, you write something, you give it to somebody, and you're like, you know, yeah, oh yeah, like yeah, definitely. Um, you know who I would always run everything by, even when I was a little kid, younger kid, was my dad, mm. grandpa. Um, he, my parents were divorced, so at the age of 13, you know, they lived separately. Dad, so I would call him up, and I would say, I wrote this poem, I wrote this story, I did this paper. And he would always say, I love it. You know, it's amazing. You know, he was just so That's positive. Great. Yeah. And so it gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah. So when I got to my first job, you know, yeah, it's like, you, I felt like I could write a story, but I had to write them fast. You know yeah. what this is like, like in radio. Yeah, you got to pump it out fast. You got to right. do it quickly. Yeah. And so, like, could I write a story in three hours? Yeah. Um, that Deadline. was what I worried about. Yeah, and then would it deadlines. still be okay? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I don't know. Well, tell me. I mean, it was, was it like this for you? But when you have a deadline, there's never a – there's just never a moment when you think it's perfect, right? I right. mean, do you to this day look back at old stories and go, oh, I could have mm, – I could have oh, – I could have. definitely. Do you yeah. still? Why did I write it that way? I mean, there's been a few stories, big stories, that I – a lot of editing went into a lot of time and I think wow sometimes I read it and think wow I wrote that like yeah. I'm pretty proud of that yeah. but that's rare uh well, did you write was there a high school paper a college paper anything like yeah, that of course we were the Iroquois um Braves you know yeah. my high school so our newspaper as I learned later on in my life was called the smoke signal but I've met a lot of people who are in new newspapers who actually their high school newspaper was a smoke signal too I thought that was so clever but it turns good. out it wasn't that's pretty good what's your what was your first ever published work 
Oh, that's a good would question. Would it have been for the smoke signal? Probably? It would have been for the smoke signal, yeah. yeah. Do you remember yeah. that first story you ever saw in print? I don't remember. I really do not remember oh, what okay. that was. I should. Yeah. yeah. So then you you go to Penn State. Yeah, I went to Penn State and I worked for um, like a weekly newspaper for a while in there when I was in college. And so I published some things in there and that was exciting. Um, and then I went to Penn State and majored in journalism. And then I was with people in journalism. And I mean, I guess, you know, maybe everybody feels this way, but. They were so good. These other students were so amazing. And I thought, I'm never going to be good. I'm never going to be like they are. Like, they're so much better than I am. But journalism is like writing, is like somebody who's good at pitching a baseball. If they every day work on pitching a baseball, they'll be better than average. And if they're really, really talented um, over time, they make it to the major leagues. So, Journalism is one of those things where when I learned and understood how people read a story and what makes a good story a good story, it's like, I can do this. You know, how, how, What percent, if you had to guess, does it break down to, I was born with this raw talent versus I worked hard and studied what it takes to be a good writer? Like, What's the percent breakdown, you think? I'd say it's close to 50-50 because okay. I meet a lot of people in journalism. I've done a lot of training, a lot of, lot of training, and a lot of editing of writers. And, you know, my older sister, Judy, who was an English teacher, always sa- said to me one time, you don't fix the writing, you fix the writer. And so in my career, when I've been an editor, my goal has always been to try to fix the writer as much as you're trying to help that particular story in that moment. What are the bigger long-term things I can do to help fix the writer? Okay. That's so, yeah, yeah. So I think every single day, you know, you're working at what is a good story? Sometimes what you think a good story is isn't what other people think a good story is, the people who are reading it. So I have to pay a lot of attention to what are people reading? Why are they reading it? What's interesting about it? You can't stop because that also evolves over time. And and isn't that a tough thing to learn too? The subjectivity in general of just you know, you can write something, and no matter what, there's going to be someone who thinks it's the best thing they've ever read, and somebody who goes, "Ugh, well, that's not news, right?" Right. Oh yeah. No matter what you write, even yes. if you're like nominated for a freaking Pulitzer, right. somebody's going to be like, "Oh, I skipped that story." <laughs> yeah, how frustrating is it to to be like, you just can't, you just can't satisfy a hundred percent. Yeah, you can't. I used to say when I was young, very young, I used to say if you put a big red heart on the front page of a newspaper, people would still call and complain about it. <laughs> so true. So, well, in my, in my world, you know, somebody will. Tell told me years ago see you know Reese's peanut butter cups have like a 97% approval rating like who doesn't like a Reese's peanut butter cup right somebody three <laughs> percent of people hate Reese's peanut butter. how is that possible so again right. no matter what you put into the world like somebody's gonna go ugh, ugh. but anyway so you head down to Lewiston yeah in, 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 do you move down to this little town where you don't know anybody it's, exactly yeah, yeah. move to this little town don't know a single soul but I'm like, all I'm focused on is this career that I, I wasn't sure I was going to attain. You know, like you graduate from college, but it's not necessarily good enough. There's a lot of people going for those jobs. You know, is it, you know, is my resume good enough? Are my stories good enough? And I, yeah, I end up in this little tiny town and it's a tiny little staff. So there's 10 people. One of those is an editor. One of those is a managing editor. The rest of us are reporters and um, in sports and in news, and right away, it just I felt like I was at home. Oh, good. Um, okay. I was nervous, of course, about writing the stories, but I made friends right away. Everybody was around my age, 
So it was kind of an easy transition in that way. So young team then. Yeah, it was a young team. team. Yeah, young and hungry, and everyone was ready to prove themselves. And yeah, exactly. Uh, What were those? Were you doing news at that time? I was. I started off kind of doing features and some news. Um, So the person who was my direct editor, she, um, she was, she'd she'd been there for maybe I don't know six or seven more years than I did. So she thought you know she was senior and. She was, you know, she knew how to do things and I didn't. And so that made me nervous. She made me nervous, but I didn't feel nervous about my ability. I just felt nervous that I never was able to please her. Um, But then I moved into news, I would say, probably nine months later. And how long in general were you in Lewiston? I was there for three years. And most of of that time I was like a police reporter, court reporter, municipal reporter. How do you balance like the, the, you know, you you go to this little market, you're brand new in your career. Obviously, working in Lewiston wasn't your life goal, but of course, is where you have to start and you have to do. So how soon into this three years do you start looking for the next gig, you know, the bigger market, the Mm. bigger paper? Like, yeah, good question. Um, I think about a year and a half into it, my our boss of that of those ten people um, moved to a job in California, and I thought this is time. It's time to fly, and go back to Grandpa, my dad. Um, he said, uh, "Why are you doing that? You know, they gave you a chance when nobody else was giving you a chance. Now you need to give them back the best of what you can do. Mm. They trained you for a year and a half. Now you stay there and give them a good year and a half." So that was my goal. I thought after three years, it's probably time to fly. So what comes after Lewiston? Uh, what, um, what is the, we can kind of we'll go through the career a lot because I know you've made you've had a lot of stops. You've climbed as you go. But so how does it go after Lewiston? What yeah, I went. I was. Um, I went back to Penn State to be the advisor of their newspaper, their student newspaper. So, um, so a lot of people are aware of what a student newspaper is in at Penn State. It's a daily paper, five days a week, as long as school's in session. There were 200 students on the news side and another 100 on the advertising side. And so I was the advisor for those 200 students on the news side. So it's kind of like a teacher in many ways. I um, I was the advisor, so I helped select who the reporters were who were going to come in and then kind of helped guide them and teach them. Um, and I only had three years in. So you can imagine, you know, I learned a lot as I went. I was still pretty young, but I loved working with people who thought they were going to change the world. Uh, yeah. And because you feel like that when you're in college, and I've always felt like I have to still believe that I can change the world, yeah. and um, so I've always tried to keep that with me. So from Lewistown, I went to York, um, York, Pennsylvania, the newspaper there. So the boss who left to go to California, he was in York, and I loved him so much. I thought he was such a great boss, had such a great idea about what journalism was. Um, I felt I went to York and worked for him, and was a different kinds of editor so you know just different roles there by that time I had a little girl um Emily and shout out she's building a bookshelf in the background right now she's here she's all grown up now um but you know like my choices after that point were really how how could I balance my life because when I was a reporter I worked you know 10 to 12 hours a day every day Saturdays and Sundays sometimes worked um, she would tell you that I might be the same way right now in my life. But um, so I was working a lot of hours. So I couldn't do that with a little girl. So I always took jobs in which I could balance those two things. So editor jobs were ones where I knew I could leave at least at leave at 530, quarter to six from work and then go get her and, mm-hmm. you know, have the rest of my evening with her. So York, I was different kinds of editor and I became a writing coach. That was when I started to train people, started to teach people what I knew. 
and I would go out and give speeches like all over the country um, to groups about that's huge. writing and editing. Yeah, and that's still fun. pretty early in your career too at this point. It was, right? yeah. So you were obviously full. I mean, somebody's recognizing in you how full of talent you are. I mean, you were just a star right off the bat because oh, how, how old are you in this part of the story? Yeah, I was in my early 30s. I mean, that's yeah. a, that, it's really young to be sent out and be like, go teach the teach them because you're still I mean if you're under 40 you're considered a young professional right so you're still very young in terms of the entire career and how this thing was going to pan yeah, out yeah I mean I I think you know in our family your mother was a teacher yeah. um, my other sister Judy she was a teacher so and I feel like I have that in me there's a bit of that I that desire I liked what they did I always thought teaching was something that seemed so appealing to me but I it takes a lot to be a teacher it takes a lot of hard work it takes a lot of patience I, I thought at some point I can't do that. Um, but being a writing coach, I was able to kind of do some of that. And so I have that there's an appeal to me to do that, mm-hmm. to help other people grow. And teachers are inspired to do that. I mean, that's their, that's their gut, their life. And um, it's amazing. It's an amazing job that they do. I just thought, I don't know if I can do that. It's hard. But I could take a little piece of that and do it myself. Being that I'm sitting here with a writing coach, I feel like <laughs> I have to, on behalf of any writers listening, ask you the big question, which is, is there a cure for writer's block? What do you do when you're staring at a blank page and nothing is coming out? Because we've all been there. Sometimes you can just knock it out, and other times there's nothing happening. Right, right. What do you do when there's nothing happening? Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing is, you know, always go back to the story. So if you're going to go home and you're going to tell your wife in your case or, you know, your mom and dad, um, your best friend, what would you tell them? Where would you start? And just start typing that? Just start typing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Emily, my daughter, she ha- she would have writer's block when it came to writing papers when she was in school. And I'd say, I'll sit at the typewriter. I'll sit at the computer. What, 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 what's your story about? What's your, what's your paper about? And I would just take notes. I'd ask her a bunch of questions. I'd take all the notes. She'd just spew it all out. Then when she was all done, I'd turn the computer back over to her and say, okay, write the paper. It was all there. It was all there. Yeah. It's all, it, if you can allow your voice to be the thing that, that you write, instead of it being like, you know, therefore and heretofore, you know, like that kind of stuff isn't a good story. That isn't a good paper. It isn't a good anything. Nobody's going to like it. It's about just going back to how would you tell somebody? How would you write a letter to your grandfather to tell that story? So then what are the what are the principles of good storytelling then? Because I guess that's really what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. It's good storytelling. Right. What are the the beginning, middle and end of a story? Cause I've always been a fan of a I've always been a fan of a success story that has a that has a moment of peril, yes. right? It's the, I was doing so great, and then I almost lost it all, and then I got, and then right. I persevered. Yeah. But I don't know if that's if that's just my personal liking or if that yeah. makes a good story. That's a type of a story, and actually that's considered one of the most well-read and most popular story forms ever, which is... So I'm very basic. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It is, no, it's, it's it, I mean, if you watch movies, if you read books, right. a man in a hole, a woman in a hole, a woman or man in peril mm-hmm. and how they find their way out of it is one of the most popular, most in-demand stories. And so when you, you'll see it in movies, you'll see it in TV shows over and over and over again. Those are the most exciting stories. Um, but yeah, I mean, what you just, when you started off by asking the question was, what makes a good story? A beginning, a middle, and an ending. And a lot of people kind of miss that. Um, the idea of a great story is there's some kind of conflict, man versus man, man versus nature, you know, those things you learned in English class. When you're writing a story in journalism, unless it's a true, like I went to a meeting, um, there's been a crime, somebody's been arrested, 
having a beginning, middle, and ending, having something where it begins in a natural place and it ends in a natural place. There's some kind of conflict and somebody's trying to figure out their way through it. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean two people are fighting. It means that somebody might be fighting with themselves. It might be, it might be a story about somebody who's lived through cancer. And we all don't necessarily have to go through cancer, but we go through our own hurdle. So what, what you want to try to do when you tell that kind of beginning, middle, ending, the conflict is, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, you want to make it um, more universal so that we're not talking about the, the cells that break down in cancer. We're talking about the difficulties somebody has with the diagnosis and kind of living through it, getting the through those, the human experience yeah. of it. Because yeah. you and I won't have cancer necessarily, hopefully, but we might go through something else that's challenging, difficult. Right. Your job, my job, you know, um, a, a neighbor that we have a challenge with. Well, you know, any challenge that any of us have, we can all identify with that. Um, by the way, if you do need to drink, as we heard at the beginning of the podcast, you have a beverage in front of you. Don't be afraid to grab a, <laughs> take a I sip. I don't want my you, tongue to go down while <laughs> your we're Your throat on. is kind of, you know, it's okay. Uh, one last thing on storytelling. I've often heard that one popular tactic is to start with the ending, if you think you have a good end, and work backward. Is that right. a thing, or is that just something I've heard and that's not No, right? that's good, actually. And it's funny you say that because you tell stories that way. I do, don't I? You tell with like... Hey guys, um, yeah. I've never been to an emergency room, but let me tell you that, my, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you start and you told a story earlier today with the same way. Like yeah. you start kind of with a punchline in a way. Right. And then, and everybody's, now everybody's captured. Yeah. That's exactly. The way you talk, the way you share a story is a great way to write a story. Instead of yeah. thinking you have to be formal, just be yourself. Right, yeah. right, right. Okay, so qu- back to the career real quick, because I want to get to some of the specific stories you've worked on. Yeah. So let's hot, let's, I'll, I'll shut up for yeah. a little while. It's going to be hard, <laughs> but I will lock my, I'll put my microphone on my lap for a moment. <laughs> uh, let's catch us up to where you are today. Like, yeah, what are yeah. the next stops? And I mean, take your time with it. Yeah. You don't have to rush. But. No, no. I mean, we, I was in New York, did some editing jobs, became a writing coach. Eventually, then I was hired in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So I worked for the Patriot Penn Live. Um, and I was a writing coach there and an enterprise editor. So all the big stories, the big projects did all those um, and helped reporters and then kind of worked on magazines and kind of other stuff in that at that same company um, and then went to back to work at the York Daily Record um, where I was a, became kind of an analyst. So, you know, nowadays you can look at analytics. You can look at kind of what people are reading and how long they're reading it because people are reading things online. So we know they spent 20 seconds on a story, one minute on a story. We know, um, you know, kind of how often people are reading a particular story. I've kind of looked into all that because I love this, this sort of the science of it. Mm-hmm. What are people reading and why are they reading it? Because again, it goes back to being a writing coach. How do we get more people to think about writing their stories that appeal to the audience? What are we missing? What are, what's the audience reading? Um, and what what did you find? I said I was going to shut up, and I didn't shut up. <laughs> what did you find? Because I would imagine that you found some things that might have been news to you guys. Like people oh, yeah. are not reading high school sports stories, and yet we're sending reporters every Friday night to do all every high school game in town, right? Yes. Because uh, I am I wrong? Was high school sports wasn't quite getting the clicks, right? High school or? sports, like when you talk about specific games, like you just yeah. mentioned, no, they weren't. Um, right. People who who care about that school were what reading it and carefully reading it and reading every word of it. Yes, but kind of doing the bigger stories, 
athletes that tra- sort of transcend, like we talked about with with a story with conflict in it, an athlete who's trying to overcome something or has overcome something or is really great at something. We all learn something from that. It gains a bigger audience. More people are interested in that. Yeah. And of course, journalism, you know, in general has gotten smaller. Fewer reporters, fewer editors. So you can't cover that much as much stuff anymore. So how do you cover the best of those things? High school sports is still very appealing, probably one of the most popular things that we put up, but it has to be the right kind of stories. And those game stories aren't necessarily those things. I think I remember something in, 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 in our town, in Rochester, about people were buying advertising for high school sports because their kid plays on the team, but, but nobody was reading the stories. Like, yeah. So they were going like, I think we still got to cover it because I, I, then it's a business decision, right? Right, it is, right. yeah. Um, yep. So I'm sorry, now I will go back to shutting up. So analytics, you're an analytics. Yeah, analytics, yeah. So, so I mean, you learn a lot about um, what time of day people read a story online. Um, you know, what, what, who, who, what kind of age group will read. All that stuff is really fascinating to me. Um, so I did that for a while. And then, you know, as you know, then my, my husband died. That was three years ago. And so I quit my job. Um, that was when I was an analyst. So I was, I was an analyst for the USA Today Network. And I worked for corporate. Um, I quit my job at that point and then did his job. Um, ran his business until, he, until I sold it. That was about, that took about a year and a Let's half. Let's talk about a little detour, by the way. Yeah. Uh, a major detour in your life. Now all of a sudden you have to run this business that it's a vet it's a vending machine company right it's a vending company and, right. and you hadn't i mean you'd been around him for all those years so you're hearing what it's like to run that company by just sharing stories with him but now all of a sudden you have to do it with zero notice that you have to do it what was that experience like? yeah whole different world than anything whole you'd ever been world. in yeah. yeah um it was like you know you take grief and then you add on top of it all this responsibility and no responsibility not just to to the six people at that point who worked there and of course their jobs, but also my husband had 25 years doing that job and started the business from nothing to something to all of this. And like, I couldn't fail him. Right. Um, I could fail myself. I couldn't fail him. So there was a lot of pressure on me and I was putting a lot of pressure on me. Um, so it was, and there's this dark cloud of grief you know, grief, you know, is like at the beginning, um, you know, there's always a dark cloud over your head when you, when you lose somebody that you're, that you're that close to. At first, the cl- dark cloud is on your head. I mean, it's, it's clouding you. Like I just got up every day and I just did what everything I had to do, but I, I almost, you're almost numb to all of that stuff. But over time, you know, I kind of learned more and understood it more and understood that it was very, what he did was very hard. I mean, you don't know what somebody does until you s- walk in their shoes and I could never fill his shoes, but to, to do that was just so, so, so hard. Um, and I don't have, I don't have that ability like you have, you know, you run a business, you have to be a bit of a risk taker. I'm not that you have to juggle a million different things. I'm not, you know, it's just that it was just very, very difficult. I was just, when it was sold, I was just very happy that was done. Um, and I was happy that it all worked out and Mike would be, have been so happy and so proud of all that. Um, and so then I went back to journalism because that's what I loved. And um, did you miss it? I mean, you really didn't have time to miss it. You were busy and you were right. grieving. But did you miss it? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a part of me that just there's uh, when I retire someday, I will miss it. I'll mm. always always miss it for the rest of my life because I feel like 
who gets to do a job where they tell stories about other people? <laughs> cool. I mean, it's just the greatest thing in the it's world. It's a cool job. Yeah. It's a, gr- it's a it, great it's job. It's such a corny thing to say, but it's true. Like, you haven't worked a day in your life. Yes. Because you get to do the thing that you like doing. Yeah. And that is, as corny as that is, it's completely true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are days when I say, like, you're overwhelmed by, oh, my God, I've got to do all these things. I've got to do this, 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 this. But then you say... I tell stories about what's going on in the world. Like, this is so cool. Yeah. So I went back to that. So, and I went back to be a reporter because that's what my husband and I had always talked about at the end of my career. I want to go back and be a reporter again. That's what I really love doing. I had gone into the editing ranks because I had a little girl. Um, and, you know, obviously now she's all grown up and she's on her own, but I just really wanted to go back to it. That's So that's what I'm doing. And so that's let's, let's talk about the highlights along the way. So let's go into some of the specific stories. Obviously, you've written a million stories. We can't talk about them all. But actually, the first story I want to talk about is one that I don't think you did write, but it's a really good story. And that is that didn't you work for the paper that broke the Jerry Sandusky news yeah. Oh, yeah. months before anyone yeah. cared? I'm going to use the word cared because how did that all go down? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, people knew, sports writers knew for uh, a, a a time that Jerry Sandusky that there were rumors about Jerry Sandusky but um, it was just a thing people were kind of like, yeah he's a little weird yeah or There's... we've heard things and you you couldn't nobody would talk about it um, you know it was it was very hush hush well I'm, and again I'm sorry to keep interrupting you but no, because okay. you you know the Penn State's been a part of your life so yeah. that to you that's second nature to me I've not been around Penn State much but it's very protected right I mean oh, pr- yeah. Penn State football like you don't for lack of a better term you don't fuck with that that's right. that's something like even if you've got dirt on that do not say a word right is that yeah. where it was coming from was like oh yeah I mean I think there there's definitely like they say a cone of silence there's a cone there was a cone of silence there of protecting Joe Paterno protecting the team protecting the money that's involved in all of that right. um it's kind of like you know, I just started watching the People versus O.J. Simpson, the, the television series, and my daughter and I were talking about it. We are talking about the fact that, you know, at the time that it happened, of course, she was so so young, but people couldn't believe that O.J. Simpson did that, mm-hmm. right? It, at first, your reaction is he did not do that. And so when this all happened with Jerry Sandusky, the first reaction is, no, no, it, this, this couldn't possibly have happened. And then Joe Paterno couldn't have known anything about it. And, you know, Penn State couldn't have known anything about it. And as time goes on, like, as the facts come out, like, it's shocking. It's just shocking. So a reporter at the Patriot was really the people who were, who had been um, assaulted, abused. Um, she had made contact with some of those people. So, so she had sources, not from Penn State, but from that community of people who'd been affected by what he had done so she had a couple people saying i will go on the record yep we're ready to do this and and do you remember what were the internal meetings like about are we going to go we're going to do this we're going to put this in print yeah i mean it's a lot there's a lot of lawyers involved there's a lot of talk there's a lot of there's a lot of work um you know people think that everything we know we print no not even close Right, right not even close there's just so much stuff that you you can't you can't get people to use their name or you can't get enough people to back up those very big allegations that are being said. If nothing's gone to court yet, if we go out there and say somebody did something, you better have a lot of witnesses who go along with it. Or Is there an you know, official rule or I mean, what's the rule on now it's fit for print as far as I've got two sources, both of them will let me use their name or one, I've got one anonymous source. Like what, where is the moment where 
typically an editor is going to say it's fit for print now. You, you can do it. Um, it's it's a, usually a lawyer. So usually it's our lawyers that say yes. And it really depends on who the witness is, who that person is who's willing to go on the record. What do they know? How close were they to the event? You know, like... There's a lot that goes into that. Okay, so it's There's a big a formula. It's not a simple just... Yes, it's a feeling after all of that that I think we have enough. If we were taken to court, we have enough people, witnesses who say yeah. this happened that we feel comfortable with it. So you guys do have... Finally, you, you're the first to print that Sandusky story, right? Right. But then here's my favorite part of the story. If I remember correctly, nothing happens. Right. Not for months. Yes. What the hell was that about? Yeah, um, I think there was a lot. I mean, probably a lot we didn't see, a lot no one saw about a lot of scrambling behind the scenes. The cat was finally out of the bag. There had been, already been a lot of discussion about it, and I think they're trying to like figure out what do we do now? How do we how do we combat this? What's Penn State going to say? You know, they're probably talking to a lot of people behind the scene, but it did take a while for it to finally kind of hit the hit the windshield you know the bug on the windshield that like okay now now the world's paying attention to it but at first yeah hardly anyone did what was it like around the newsroom the day after that published and and uh or, or maybe the day after it wasn't a big deal because like you said it didn't pick up yet but when that became the biggest story in the nation what was it like around the newsroom where you guys all was it is it high five time because you guys have broken the biggest story in the country or is it not or is it more like you know nose down back to work nose down yeah absolutely okay. absolutely it's almost like you know if you talk to somebody who climbs mountains for a living that's what they do and they love it so much they'll climb a mountain and then they'll say okay what mountain do I need to climb next yeah. you know you take one minute and you say okay take a deep breath where do we go from here because the story didn't go away it didn't get fixed it didn't get finished so now you need to go forward you need to keep pushing 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 so um throughout your entire career we can we'll, we'll pick a couple to talk about I suppose but let's at least go with the first what was the first story you ever did that blew up where the next day it was all anyone was talking about what's the first time you experienced hmm. that wow that's interesting um there have been i mean there are a number i would tell you the one that sticks out to me is very early in my career and it wasn't kind of like overnight but um it had a big impact and it had a big impact on me because i was so young um there there was this place in lewistown um that was the fire school for pennsylvania so firefighters from all over the state of pennsylvania would go to the fire school and it was falling apart the guy who worked there said i'm i can't work here anymore you know this is terrible and he said there are people who are going to lose their lives in this place because they basically burned buildings to learn how to take put the fire out so i went out and i met with him and he said you know this is BS. This is never going to go anywhere. This isn't going to help. I don't know why I'm doing this interview, you know. And I said, just talk to me. You know, let's let's just do this. So I wrote the story. The Associated Press picked it up. And within six months, one of the local legislators had gotten a couple million dollars, which would have been like 1986. To, so the fire school completely got renovated. And, and it still stands today. And that story. Yeah, yeah. How good does that feel? That, I, to, the, to this day, it's probably one of the best feeling stories I, I've ever had yeah because to a lot of people they would never know I've and I've met people who've gone to the fire school in the last five years and I've, I've talked to them about is this guy still there is the how's the fire school doing it's doing great it just makes me feel good that's great it's all that anyone needs to know I was involved in it but just that it got better yeah. I love that yeah and so that was early on that was Lewiston right yeah. so that's like just fuel to your fire now you're just like yeah. more more right because yeah. that's almost like the drug of journalism now. it is you're like I want to do more let me yes. do that again change the world yep. yeah so then so what's the next one like what should we maybe we go in progression but what's your next big 
story or scoop or yeah I, you know i it's it's been such a long time i mean there's been a lot of those things along the way mm-hmm. um i think the the every time you do a story that ha- that resonates even if it's not a story that changes people like fixes a fire school but that it impacts people that they read something that they didn't know before or they were struggling and hurting. I'll tell you a story that I did just recently um, within the last year. A woman who lost three members of her own family. Her husband, her son, and her daughter. All within about a year's time. Oh my God. All, all for different reasons. Um, and how devastating that was to her. All of us go through painful things. And I talked about my grief. You know, talking to her, I felt so connected. But sharing her story, she she leans on religion. She believes that she'll be with them again someday. That that kind of thing helps so many other people because they say, I'm going through something difficult. And if she can go through that, I can get through that that terrible thing that I have to go through or that challenge that I have to go through. And that makes me feel so good. Was that were you doing that story while you were grieving? Oh, oh yeah. So that yeah. was that, that was, was big. right hitting home for you. Oh it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I did a story about a two parents that lost all three of their sons again all for different reasons but it's those things like that's that particular story on the three sons that story got picked up by usa today and went was published all over the country these people as much grief as they're in they heard from people all over the country who went out and did things in memory of their three sons and it made them feel so good that i mean there were some there were some people who wrote on facebook in the initial story um, they posted things that's a few things that were said that were very nasty, um, and and I felt terrible about that. But the greater majority of people, way bigger majority of people, came back to them and did wonderful things or sent them things, and they were so kind. And they and these people don't want to take anything, so they would donate that to someone else. I mean, it's just those kinds of things make me feel really good too, because of all the challenges that we have in the world, the fire schools of the world, as important as they are like how we survive, how we live, how we get up every day and figure out how we keep going is important, you know? Where, didn't you have a piece of work once that was nominated for a somewhat prestigious award? Oh, yeah, yeah well, yes. It was for a Pulitzer, right? Yeah, right. You um, yes, were nominated for a Pulitzer. Yes. And that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just in brief, that was on, in 1968, there was a big riot in Lewistown, Pennsylvania. So... 30 years after the fact, um, we ran some stories and eventually, um, people, they, they had never arrested anyone for these two murders. And we, um, we wrote some stories about it. And eventually I did two big stories, one on, on the woman who was killed in the riots and then one on the police officer who was killed in the riots. And the one on the woman who was killed was nominated for a Pulitzer. Um, it didn't win. Um, you know, so who did win? I don't remember, but (laughs) I mean, it was, it was exciting. I think the fun of that story was it was very, very long. In fact, I was actually awarded the rights to take that and turn it into a book if I wanted to. So the, the newspaper at the time said, if you decide that you want to turn this into a book, you know, you have the copyright to it. Oh, that's interesting because right. Because that would be an argument as to who owns that content. Yeah. It would be their content. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, so I, I would always have that right to do it, but, um, I, and I never chose to do that, but it's, it was, it, it was, um, it's a sad story. It's a challenging story. And Lewistown or, um, York where this all happened, York, Pennsylvania, you know, they still live under that, 
memory of that riot, but so many other cities and towns across the country did. And of course, we're living through some of that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it tears communities apart. It tears. It can tear you know a lot of people apart. But I think what's important is in this case, the people who were involved in those murders finally you know, came to justice and that's what's important in whatever we is, cover. Is that, what was it about that story that was just so particularly amazing? Was it the fact that, did that story lead to getting people arrested? Um, no, this was a story kind of, I wrote after the trials of those people. Okay. This, they were, the stories were written um, in more of a, of a long narrative, a very, very, very long story. Um, a very, very, very long story over a, a long period of time and told through the eyes of three different people. So it was just kind of the way I told the story. It's kind of what we talked about before. Yeah. How do you tell a story? You tell a story at the beginning, middle, and ending. And there are three people who were, had key, were key to that story. Right. Um, so anyway, um, my, you know, uh, another story early in my career was on the Ku Klux Klan. Um, I just got a cue card to uh, mention that one. <laughs> 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 from You're, one of our members of our audience yeah. here today. Um, <laughs> and by the way, speaking of analytics, uh, we have our own analytics machine here, and his name is my dad, Chuck Guglielmo. <laughs> and uh, he has given us a couple yawns throughout the <laughs> course of this podcast. So that's my analytics. Is, okay, <laughs> we should wrap it up. No, no, no. I, I keep, let's Do you want keep me to start singing again, Chuck? <laughs> no, no one wants that. The K, so you reported on the KKK, which yeah. I imagine means you're interviewing members of the Ku Klux Klan? Yeah, Clubs? one guy, yeah. Wow. The, there was just this... tiny little town central pennsylvania um ku klux klan flyers came out i'm a little i'm a pup at this point i'm 21 years old and i i'm gonna cover the shit out of this thing right you know so i go whole hog into this thing but you know there was a guy who was very much he was a recruiter for the kkk in pennsylvania and you know again this is the 1980s um and we we sat and interviewed him, and um, I did win some you know kind of state awards for that. Um, but what that was, was that like sitting across from that guy. Um, it was scary because we went. He wanted to meet at night. My editor, who I followed to York, he went with me. Jim, um, who was amazing. Jim Jim's voice was shaking because this guy said, "Meet me across the street from my house." And so we did, but it was like, it was dark. It was, it was like eight o'clock at night. Then he said, you know, let's go to this other place. And I, I drive there and Jim's like, oh, you know, let's find a McDonald's. You know, you can hear his voice shaking in the back. I was kind of like hyped up and, and I was only 21. So I didn't really realize that, you know, something bad could happen you have when like, you're 21 you, oh yeah you've yeah. got like you've got like balls that you have no business having right, exactly at 21 right. and then once you're like once once you're 42 you look back and you're like i can't believe Whoa. it yeah <laughs> why did i ever do that i went one-on-one with a kkk guy in the middle of the night yeah exactly. you're, but you're like you got that under your belt now but right, yeah. right. so so you're kind of your guns are blazing you're like yeah let's go talk to him yeah let's go oh yeah, yeah like i'm i'm into it and and, um, you know, Jim was much more reasoned about the whole thing, but we, I, so I didn't feel, I didn't feel nervous at all, um, talking to him, but looking back on it, I think I, right today I'd be terrified. Well, where did you, you said across the street from his house, was it like in a field or something? Like, it was, a, it was at a church, believe it or not. Yeah. It was at a church and he said, you know, I've got people looking out for me and he kind of waves his hand out at this house. And so we're thinking there were people inside the house or a few people maybe inside the house who were kind of watching us to make sure 
we didn't do anything. What, the journalists were going to beat up yeah. the KKK. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've ever met a journalist, <laughs> the twenty-one-year-old girl here right. is going to take him out. A couple of nerds yeah. are going to take out this guy, and he was big. He was a big guy. <laughs> no way. Well, what was the content of his? Did because you can't do a, a story where this guy like explains, you know, his side of the story, right? right like right, exactly. So, like, what is what is your goal in this, and what is his goal? Because his goal is probably to explain himself, right? Yeah. See, yeah. I'm not the crazy one. You're the crazy ones, right? Right. He's. I'm basically trying to find out, like, is there a Ku Klux Klan, Klan presence in this area? Oh, you know? oh I see. So yeah. this is very close to the area where we go to Raystown Lake. I see. Okay. Um, you know, middle of nowhere, basically. And um, I, you know, looking back on it, I think there was a very small presence there. I think he was the key to it. As often as it is, it's one person with a like very he had a strong couple opinion. buddies, probably. Exactly. Yeah. He's kind of getting people in, engaged in it. But, like, what's the extent of, of that presence in central Pennsylvania? That's what I really wanted to understand. And what's their issue? What are they trying to fix? So very close to Raystown is Mount Union, Pennsylvania. And in central PA, there's a lot of, you know, it's a very homogeneous area. But Mount Union itself yeah. is, there are, there a diverse population, a very diverse population. So there was conflict there um, as a result of, unfortunately. Um, and again, that was in, back in the 1980s. That's incredible. Yeah. What, uh, what are you working on right now? I'm actually, we were talking about this earlier today, I'm covering a lot of those um, uh, arrests in Pennsylvania for the insurrectionists who went into the U.S. Capitol. I'm covering all that um, and doing doing stories on that. I'm also working on a big child abuse project. What's the, for the Capitol story, what's the end goal? Is this going to be a, a giant feature? In the um, I every single person from Pennsylvania now it's up to 34 um, every single person who's been arrested from Pennsylvania I've done a story on them and oh. I add them to a big file so I'm gonna do kind of um, a bigger story on right now on who are kind of the most dangerous among those people you know how do how do people who cover or who um, look at political extremism who who are the most people that we most need to watch and look for um, so some of those people went because they just kind of got caught up in that moment, apparently, according to those people. Some of them, though, are have more extremist views and um, well, feel... There, there were a lot of people there. There were yeah. some, and I say, well, for lack of a better term, I say, and I do air quotes as I say, there were some normal people who just felt a certain way, right? Right. That was just one group of people, though, right? There was a lot of different types of people there. There were. There were. I mean, they kind of boil it down to three different groups. One is the paramilitary people um, who were there. Then there's the groups who came kind of as groups, like family, friends, co-workers. Um, they, they kind of got caught up in it. You know, they, they might have strong opinions, but not necessarily like um, take back our house kind of people. Not dangerous people. Not dangerous. Right. But then there were people who went as individuals, and they're that's kind of being close most clo most closely watched those are the people who uh, not all of them obviously but there are some among those people who did some pretty dangerous things when they were there um in fact fighting the police um the fbi right now is on a kind of on a rampage to find the people who attacked the police directly those are considered among the most dangerous people because if you're willing to fight the police in the u.s capitol um those those charges are much more serious than just about any other charge that's out there so they're the ones that they're kind of trying to study and understand a little bit more but also really kind of go after when you uh have done so you've you said 34 people so mm -hmm. so far have been arrested um they've these are people who've been arrested so are all 34 as you're doing this reporting and by the way is all this published so far yep. or some of all this is published so far mm -hmm. as you're doing this reporting 
have there been a small handful of these people where you're like, this is a scary person right here? Yeah. But yeah. not all of them? or no, no. I mean, I would say I don't know enough about all of them to know. Yeah. I've read all of their arrest warrant affidavits that the FBI has unsealed. Um, those are those really detail what they did when they were inside. Um, you know, one couple, for example, went in and they went into a police bag and pulled out um, a shield that a police officer would use if there was chemical weapons used. Um, you know, so there were there were people who went in and did some things that you think, okay, that's going a little far to go into a police bag and pull things out of it. Um, and then there were people who smashed the windows to get in. Um, you know, somebody who the, I don't know if you remember, um, a woman was shot when she was in there. One yeah. of the the only person who was shot inside the Capitol was a woman who was in the military. A person from Pennsylvania had actually been the one who took the hat off of the guy next to him and smashed the window. She then went through that window and then she got shot. That guy who, who smashed that window was from Pennsylvania. Again, that's considered a little bit more high level mm-hmm. of a of a of an issue that he was trying to get into where this to the actual Senate chambers. Um, and you know there were there was a belief that some of those people could have done much more. Well, some of them were carrying zip ties, and I mean, so you know, because one of the arguments you read online is you say some of them say, well, I, you know, they were just following the leader. Some people were in there; they were just walking. They weren't going to do anything, right? That's what you. They wouldn't have done anything. Bullshit. I mean, some of those dudes, for the most part. What do you think would have happened if they came face to face with Nancy Pelosi? They would have said, "We disagree with your politics, ma'am." That's not what was going to happen if they no, did. No, those that's scary, scary yeah. shit. Really scary. I mean, some of the things that are in those affidavits about what they said before, during, and after that protest and after that rioting, it's pretty scary. Some of it is scary. Some of it, I, you know, I do think people thought there's, there's nothing to it. Let's go in. Let's let's fight a little. Let's argue a little bit, but. Um, I, some of the people had a totally different idea what they were going to do. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, last question, I guess. Uh, along the way, the big breaks. There, there have been breaks. Um, where do you see those? I, I would say your first break was probably the fact that you had this father who was very supportive, right? Because some people have a father who you could have written a poem for, and dad would have been like, "That's stupid." Right. You know, go, go make dinner. You know? Yeah. Right. Right. Like some right. people were born with that father. Yes. That would probably be your first big break, don't you think? Oh, I definitely think so. I think yeah. having somebody who's a cheerleader, yeah. always, always, always. Having somebody who's going to say, I know you can do this. Um, yes. you can do. And he wrote me letters all through college saying, you know, even if this doesn't work out, because he worried that I would feel like if I, I failed if I didn't become a journalist. He would say, if this doesn't work out, something else will. You know, you're, you're destined mm-hmm. for good things in your life. And so, yeah, that cheerleader. I think always having the ability um, whether it's somebody believing in you or having the money, whatever the means, to get to the part where you can actually get the education. Getting an education for me was key. In those days, you know, people didn't get into journalism without a college education. So I was lucky enough to come from a family where they believed in a college education. And uh, my dad helped me pay for the first two years. My mother paid for a lot of things along the way, too. And then I paid for my last two years in college. That was important. Um, that was key. What about big breaks throughout the career? Was it just lots of little breaks, or were there any big moments where you felt like today was different than yesterday? I'm in a different level now. No, I think it was a lot of small ones, and I would say almost all of those. I mean, I worked hard. I always worked really hard, tried to make good decisions, tried to prove myself. But I would say the most important thing is there were a lot of people like my dad along the way who opened the door or, or opened the door far enough for me to try to walk through that door 
um, who helped me, who tried to see the best in me, who tried to help get the best out of me, um, to help me find my way. And um, without those people, I wouldn't be telling the story right now, for sure. Um, you mentioned retirement. I, uh, who knows when you're going to retire, whenever you decide to. Book? I've, I mean, I'd love to write a book, yeah. I mean, I think about it all. The, I've thought about it for 10 years, so yeah, yeah I'd love to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Would it be just like a, would it be your life story? Or would it be a compilation of, of what you've worked on or just a little bit of everything? Or I, mean? um, I, I don't think anybody would want to read my life story. Because <laughs> like our, no, your dad to... Chuck over here to put him to sleep. Um, well, say, you're, you've had a great life. We've only heard one aspect, but we didn't get into like, I mean, we, this story, I feel bad even bringing this up because now we got to tell the story, but you had a near-death experience. Right? Right. Didn't you almost die when you were in your early 20s? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was in college. I got hit by a car, yeah. And it was really bad, right? It was really bad, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I mean, if I were to write a book, um, I love to write about my husband, but right. sometimes, you right. know, just even the idea of that makes me sad. So I don't know, maybe I'll be ready for that someday because he was... He always found happiness. He always found joy, yeah, yeah. and he was a he was a positive, op- optimistic person. And I think so many people could learn from that. So I'd love to write about him. But if not, I'd I think I would write something fictional. I mean, I have a million ideas in my head. Has anyone ever just written a book called Strong? Because like, I don't that know. would encompass like your whole story, right? Yeah, like, that would just oh, be the whole great. thing, and it's your and it's your last name. So like it's just perfect. Because yeah. I realize the listeners wouldn't know that. It's like I'm telling you that's your last name. By the way, <laughs> did you know your last name is Strong? <laughs> I, I could see my dad rolling his eyes, going, "I think she knows her last name." <laughs> I think um, he just yawned again. It's for the By listeners. the way, we put the dog to sleep. Yeah, even if we haven't put. Chuck speaking to of him. analytics, there's a lot of snoring going on in the room. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's what did we miss? Did we miss anything? Well, can I just say one more thing? It depends. You haven't asked <laughs> me kidding. this question, but I mean, you're my nephew, so I just want to say this yeah. to all you, all of these listeners out there. Uh, <laughs> there are many. I'm so proud of you. Oh, thank I'm so you. Very, very proud of you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was Chuck trying to pretend he was yawning. I th- he yawned. Isn't that rude? Well, you know, I was talking to Ryan about this, I think, today. But, you know, uh, when I used to get to talk to your, to Mike, uh, your, your husband who passed away, when I used to talk to Mike about that vending machine company, that was so fascinating to me. Like, I mean, because I'm thinking about when that was actually happening. That would have been... That would have been way before I started the sauce business, right? So, like, years before. We would go to Raystown, and I would sit there, and I would just ask. He would show me, like, Excel spreadsheets and, like, just shit that I, A, didn't understand. It was over my head. And, B, had no business, like, but he would take the time to actually show me. This is what expenses are. This is how yeah. my sales go. These are my margins. This is how I decide whether or not to do this or that. That helped so much. Well, that's good Because to know. it made it real. Yeah. Because it didn't seem real to me that yeah. you could own a business. Because why would, who would buy my thing? Like who would ever, why, why would I have the audacity to think I could own a business? Well, and when talking about somebody cheerleading you along, he didn't have that. There were a lot of people who said, just get a normal job. Like, they didn't know somebody who owned a business. And yeah. when you don't know somebody who owns a business, it, it does seem like a big task. But he had uber amounts of confidence. So he was really super confident that he could do it. And yeah. he did. Yeah. But I must tell you, he loved talking to you. So he would always say, well, how can we make it so that I can be in the car with Paul yeah, and yeah. we can spend time together? We had to split a lot of times, two, three cars we had to take places. Yeah. I always wanted to be with Mike. Yeah, he, he always wanted to be with you. He would teach me stuff, yeah. of course, yeah. But all that stuff sunk into me. But the thing that sunk in the most of everything was just, oh, it's like 
you know, Mike's like a real person that I know who started a business and it's working. Like that's yeah. it's realistic. It could actually be done. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, I I just I'm really just forever appreciative of that. And then of yeah. course for you personally, like so appreciative of you. You actually I married because of you. Right. Oh, right. Yeah, that's you performed true. our wedding ceremony. Right. That's right. That's true. And I edited the little thing that's on the side of your label, your first label. That's right. You did. I forgot about that. I, you. That's right. Damn and it. I actually, I was actually the one who said, I think you should write. I. You showed us the different kinds of labels. Yeah. And I said, I think you should choose the one with your grandpa and you because the story of the sauce is really what's going to. And I thought you should put the sauce story on the side of your label. You know what's crazy? I don't think I've ever talked about that because back in 2004, we launched in late 2014. We went to Raystown. This would have been really like a month before. Yes. And it was between. What it is today, which is this Googleyamos, the front looks like a children's book, it's like animated, and the story on the side, I believe I had something written, but you took it and punched it up, and you journalized the hell out of it, right? Right. You you journalism journalism to the hell out of it, you, whatever. <laughs> um, and it and now it's that's the way it is today is the way that you punched yes. it up for me. Uh, but the there was another option, and it was this more sleek, slick yes. kind of looking, and and I remember what it was going to be called. Do you remember by anything? No, Jesus. It was going to be called Rock and Roma. <laughs> Rock and Roma, because it, because we used Roma tomatoes and we were in Rochester, so it was gonna be called uh, Rock, Rock and Roma, Roma. sauce, That's and it had a re- the label and the artist had done a label for that one too. I should see if I can dig that out because that would be cool now to look at. But it was like this really sleek, slick, way more of a trendy play as yes, opposed to the one we, we went with was way more of like a tug at the heartstrings kind of. Right. But the one we went with right now was is timeless whereas that other one was like in that moment this would be cool right now yeah you didn't know if you were when you were buying that were you buying sauce or you're buying wi-fi equipment like it was like (laughs) i wasn't it didn't say sauce as much but yeah this one is is awesome in that in that bed and breakfast at Raystown, we as a family decided that was the one to go we with. We did, and yes. And that's the one people know today. And then when we came to your very first thing in yes. all, that August, I came with the stand-up version of Pete. So speaking of support, uh, and that still is in my office today, by the way, but speaking of support, we're just about wrapping up, I can see. Uh, I, when I first decided that I was going to do that, my wife never told me it was stupid. When I came to July to Raystown, you guys didn't act like it was stupid and then in august when we launched it you guys all came i think everybody in this room actually now that i look at it it was you it was my cousin stephanie my mom my cousin emily chucky yeah my dad that's gonna sound weird chucky Mm. uh who else ryan obviously am i missing anybody who else was there is that the whole crew I don't, I don't think, think David, David was there. No, no, no. But anyway, but uh, there was a whole bunch of people who, instead of being like, that sounds kind of stupid, they were like, I'll be there. Yeah. And we did under that little $100 tent that I borrowed, by the way, didn't even own. We started a freaking sauce business that weekend. I couldn't even believe it. And and yeah, so yeah. thank you. Because yeah. like what your father did for you, you did for me. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Along yeah. with everybody else. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, we're so proud of you. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. You going to make any more of these drinks? I'll make you some more drinks, and I'll sing you some more songs when we get off these microphones. All right. I could drink another one of these. It's still pretty early. Thank you, Aunt Kim. You're welcome.